so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Are you feeling patriotic today? Well, Lindsay, it is that time of year. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week, uh, it's a remote recording of the podcast, so we might sound a little strange, is uh, the one and only Renaissance man, as we just discussed, Brent Leatherwood. Well, you're going to have to give people context. They, they were not a part of that discussion. That was an off-air discussion. And so, yeah, you need to define your terms. What do you mean by Renaissance man? Well, you Lindsay. just are a doer of all things. You know a lot of information. Uh, well, I'm not sure if you can do a lot of things. Yeah, I don't think I can do a lot of you things. Can make your, you can get your hair on a good wave. You can sing patriotic songs. You can throw a baseball, but like, can you <laughs> do stuff around the house? <laughs> can you? <laughs> I don't know that that's a definition for a Renaissance man. What it might be a definition for, not the, the doing things, is, is somebody that might be a, a decent Jeopardy contestant. Yes. Well, no, Jeopardy was not around in the Renaissance period, so it doesn't necessarily... Oh fit in the definition, but Jeopardy contestant is just a smart person. Oh, well, thank you. Thank so, you yes. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, let's so while I, while I paid you a compliment, let's go ahead and move along before we go downhill and let's talk about what's been happening lately. And we're going to start with what the ERLC has been featuring. And first up is a piece by Jordan Wooten, and it's an explainer about religious liberty in Ukraine in the 20th and 21st centuries, because as you know, uh, Ukraine's religious liberty is tenuous. The future of religious liberty in their country is tenuous because of this illegal Russian invasion into their country, all the destruction and death that they have been facing. Uh, throughout, Jordan says, throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, Ukraine has had a complicated relationship with religious liberty. And now, as with all other expressions of freedom in Ukraine, the country's religious freedom is under siege. Ukrainian citizens' ability to order their lives in response to what they believe is true is being thwarted by a savage and inhumane Russian military charade. And we have posted several pieces about uh, praying for the people of Ukraine standing with them in prayer in the midst of what they are facing. And so this is just one other way that we can educate ourselves so that we can be able to pray for and advocate for uh, the people of Ukraine as they face this seemingly endless crisis with Russia that's going on. This is a helpful piece, I'm sure, for a number of folks in our audience. We've talked about it uh, previously, how uh, Southern Baptists have a particular 
and personal connection with the people of Ukraine. And um, many, many mission trips have gone to Ukraine and have planted gospel seeds there, so much so that uh, Ukraine itself is often sending out missionaries uh, to to other uh, Eastern and Western European countries. And so I think this piece just kind of helps folks understand the, the religious history of that country uh, that so many of us are not only fond of, but obviously care deeply about in the midst of this, this horrible crisis that they're facing. There was a lot of history to whittle down, and Jordan did the hard work for us and was able to just make it concise. So this is, as you said, a helpful piece, and I would encourage those of you who want to understand what is going on in Ukraine better to check out this piece. Next up is a piece by a pastor from Florida, Cliff Lee. And this week on our site, what we're wanting to do is help Christians to be able to faithfully live out and cling to a biblical sexual ethic in the midst of a culture that is in sexual crisis. And so one of the practical applications of that is how do Christians live in but not of the world? And Pastor Cliff has a piece titled, How Do You Watch What You Watch? Christian Wisdom and Entertainment Choices. So, so much of our media consumption or so much of what is out there for media consumption is just flushed with elements of the sexual crisis. So there's tons of sexuality stuff. There's tons of sexual scenes like soft pornography. There's tons of normalizing of uh, the LGBT movement. And so what's a Christian to do? Of course, Christians are going to come down in different places, but Cliff just gives us some pieces of information or pieces of advice to think through and to consider as we're making our media consumption choices. So like uh, one of the things is, he said, a pastor, Alistair Begg, you might recognize his name, said, when he's choosing what to watch, he thinks, okay, would I be comfortable watching this while sitting next to my mother and my daughter? And Cliff says, of course, that depends on what kind of choices your mother and your daughter make. But by and large, you know, would you be comfortable watching this sitting next to your little girl? He also says he likes filtering services, you know, that filter out, filtering streaming service that filter out some of the language and the sexuality stuff. But you have to be careful because you can't filter out your own heart. And so, yes, we want to not have nudity in what we watch, but we have to make sure that our hearts are in the right place as well. So I just thought this was a good piece just for some practical pieces of wisdom. And it's always helpful to know where a pastor is landing. I just like to know how people make their different decisions. It helps me along as I'm trying to live faithfully in the midst of this culture as well. Right. The value in this piece to me is just like I would if I was talking to my pastor, our discipleship minister, other folks in our small group at church, like it, it just gives you a peek into how they arrive at the decisions and what their daily routines are within their marriage and within their family. And and he puts in he puts it just kind of like you had mentioned, he puts in there this this advice is not a one size fits all, but we are all called to pursue holiness, and that encompasses every area of our lives. And then he goes on to offer these these suggestions. And I just I love that. I mean, basically it's just like we're reading almost like what we would be conversing about with our fellow Christ followers and just seeing kind of how they come down on on different things. And so I, I love little pieces like this that just give us little bits of wisdom to apply in our daily lives. 
Our final piece, in the midst of this week where we are emphasizing holding fast to a biblical sexual ethic and living faithfully in the midst of a sexually confused culture, is a piece by Joe Carter, and it is a glossary of the sexual revolution, understanding the ever-changing gender identity terms. And the point of this piece, which is literally a glossary of terms that we hear thrown around, is to provide clarity so that we can more effectively and compassionately minister to those who use these terms. So we want to understand so that we can proclaim to them a biblical sexual ethic that provides for flourishing because it's God-designed, and so that we can proclaim to them the gospel that brings hope and reconciliation. So we don't hold to these terms. Instead, we're ministering to people who hold to these terms. And we feel like we're not going to be able to effectively minister to them unless we understand the context in which they're coming from. This is, uh, without a doubt, this is this is a, a contentious item within the, the public square that we, we find ourselves in. And uh, our public square is always chaotic, but particularly when it comes to these issues where people are finding their identity in things and places other than Christ. And so this uh, glossary, our hope is, is that as Christians go into the public square or are interacting with, engaging, or ministering to folks who don't come uh, from our biblical worldview uh, and instead are coming from some other place, particularly as it relates to, to this issue, this will give you a better understanding of what they mean when they use some of the terms that are highlighted here. Yes, and we hope that it serves you well. Again, we do not agree with these terms, but we want to be able to minister to those that are in the world that the Lord has called us to. And that comes with understanding where people are coming from. So Brent, this is just an example of what we have on our site to be able to equip the church um, to think biblically about cultural, moral, ethical issues. And I would encourage listeners to go to our site and check out what we have there. But for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section, Brent, and we may have some guests on here with uh, little teeny tiny squeaky voices, AK and my kids, as we're recording remotely. Um, but what what do we need to know about this week? Well, Lindsay, uh, the last couple of weeks, basically all the news uh, in, in our world in particular has revolved around this Supreme Court draft opinion leak in the Dobbs Mississippi abortion case. And uh, some of our news even today is still about that, and some of it is about the aftermath of that. So just this week, the United States Senate, in response to what they are, uh, what leaders in the Senate are seeing from the Supreme Court, they decided to put on the floor of the U.S. Senate a vote on what's known as the Women's Health Protection Act. And our first story comes from National Public Radio, and it tells us this. The Women's Health Protection Act a Democrat-led bill that would effectively codify a right to an abortion, failed to pass as expected after it did not reach the Senate's 60-vote threshold. All Democrats voted for the legislation, except for Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, and all Republicans opposed the bill. In a rare occurrence, Vice President Kamala Harris presided over the vote, which was 49 to 51. Within minutes of the vote, President Joe Biden released a statement that this failure to act comes at a time when women's constitutional rights are under unprecedented attack and it runs counter to the will of the majority of the American people. 
because it was never likely to pass, the vote was effectively symbolic. Quote, I think it's really important to have this vote to show where everyone stands, Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota told NPR on Tuesday. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's comments over the weekend that Republicans might try to move legislatively on a nationwide abortion ban also up the stakes for Democrats. Uh, And it goes on to talk about how the draft opinion from the court would not issue a national ban, but it would allow states to do so. Focus could now turn to efforts for more moderate Republican senators, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who are drafting a narrower approach to this legislation. So stepping back from this, basically, just so everybody understands the timeline here, we have this draft opinion. The Senate Democrats have decided they want to uh, respond to that. So they put this particular legislation on the floor. This NPR article, though, it simply says codify Roe v. Wade. Uh, that's that's not actually accurate. This goes well beyond uh, the Roe Casey framework that we talked about last week, which is what the Supreme Court has decided previously. That's a marked departure. Uh, remember, it, it was just a few years ago where Democrats were talking about abortion in the language of safe, legal, and rare. Now they are push- they are pushing for uh, what is tantamount to uh, uh, unrestricted access to abortion, which, you know, abortion at any stage represents the loss of life. It represents the taking advantage of a vulnerable mother. What they are asking for here is is just even more heinous. So the thing I think that we need to pay attention to, because uh, procedurally, this this wasn't going to pass. It just doesn't have the votes. But Senator Joe Manchin, who is the holdout uh, on this on the Democratic side, and we are thankful that he did hold fast to this, he did tell media uh, in a separate interview this week that he would be open to a narrow approach that codifies uh, the Roe-Casey framework. That's a, that's a fairly interesting development uh, because the votes could be there to do that. And uh, that is certainly something your ERLC is, is going to be paying attention to because we, we don't want to have a moment where the Supreme Court says the Roe-Casey framework is out this issue is returned to the states. And then all of a sudden, the federal government steps in and short circuits that with a a national uh, codification of of Roe v. Wade. So this is something to be very, uh, be paying very close attention to. We will, as obviously this this issue is is very fluid uh, right now. Well, it's just a sad state of affairs that these little children, these preborn children and these vulnerable Mothers and parents are uh, the fathers involved too. Are just used as pawns in this political game, and I believe in this spiritual warfare. It is sad that many would vote to hold to such a radical view where abortion would be legal up until birth. That is just abortion is terrible at any point, but it's just egregious that we would want to. Um, make it legal that anyone would vote to make it legal up into the point of of birth. We've provided an explainer on this. And so if you are just confused or looking for more of a rundown or you want to provide some information to your friends and want to share something with them, this explainer that we have, that our DC team has put together is a very helpful. You know, we need to continue to pray that this Supreme Court opinion would come down quickly and that it would be one that ends the precedence of Roe and Casey in our country. 
That's right. Well, our next story is kind of along these same lines. It is uh, another story looking at the Supreme Court, and yet again, it's someone engaging with the media, which is just truly stunning. So it comes to us again from Politico, and it says this, the Supreme Court is set to gather Thursday for the first time since the disclosure that it had voted to overturn Roe v. Wade, and there's no sign that the court is changing course from issuing that ruling by the end of June. Justice Samuel Alito's sweeping and blunt draft majority opinion from February overturning Roe remains the court's only circulated draft in the pending Mississippi abortion case, Politico has learned, and none of the conservative justices who initially sided with Alito have, to date, switched their votes. No dissenting draft opinions have circulated from any justice, including the three liberals. The justices face sensitive decisions about how to respond to the highly unusual breach of secrecy demonstrated by the draft opinions unauthorized publication, which has unleashed suspicion inside and outside the court. Chief Justice Roberts has promised an investigation, but longtime court observers and other legal analysts say conducting such a probe presents the justices with a slew of thorny questions about who should handle the inquiry, what tactics to employ, and how to handle disagreements among the justices about those issues. So uh, here we have, again, very up-to-date reporting about the internal deliberations and machinations of the court. That just blows my mind. I, I was telling the team as we were talking about this particular article, I said it is truly stunning that an entity of the government that has had a history of keeping an airtight lid on its deliberations is now all of the sudden clearly dealing with someone on the inside who is streaming information to a journalist, even with this active investigation that the chief justice has said is underway. So to me, just kind of taking all that in, it it would suggest that the, the person who is doing this does not fear being caught uh, which could either mean it's it's not an individual under consideration in the investigation, right? So maybe a justice uh, himself or herself, or maybe it's someone the investigation cannot reach. Maybe a person outside of the court that is is close to a justice, or maybe a third theory, which is it's someone inside the court but who is closely protected by a justice. I I don't know. This is I just can't fully qualify like how crazy this is. You know, we've, we've said it elsewhere, but the justices are just not used to having their internal conversations out in the public eye, out in the public sphere. And so it, we do not yet know the ramifications of this leak and this type of interaction with the media for, for years to come. Honestly, it's mind-blowing. It's fascinating. And um, it is kind of fascinating to see people who have followed the Supreme Court for so long, like you, to see how mind-blowing it is to them. Because I didn't really pay much attention to what was happening in the court, if I just have to admit that. I do hope, like my true crime self kind of hopes that they figure out who the leak was, uh, just so we can solve the mystery. And then it's something that it seems like a movie could be made out of or like a drama series on Netflix or Hulu or something eventually in the future because it is so unprecedented, like the extent of the leaks. Leaks have happened before, but that it just right. keeps happening is is kind of crazy. Well, usually this time of year, we are in a, a moment 
You know, we know that the big cases for the court are coming up. Those traditionally are handed down at the end of the term. And so this space with the media, particularly those outlets that have a Supreme Court uh, beat, if you will, traditionally they're filling this time with reviews of what the justices said at oral argument to just kind of parse through like, oh, okay, well, Justice Alito said this and Justice Sotomayor responded with this and Clarence Thomas, he actually spoke up and said this. Like that is usually what is filling the column space for news outlets in in this particular moment. And, And oftentimes that analysis ends up being wrong because everybody's just, they're just trying to guess and speculate. Here we actually apparently have somebody on the inside of the court who is freely conversing with media. This is, honestly, I've never seen anything like it with the court. It's truly amazing. Truly amazing. Uh, And when I say that, don't hear me say amazing as in a positive thing. Uh, I I actually think this is going to have some long-term negative uh, effects on the court. Okay. Our last story here comes to us from the British Broadcasting Channel, the BBC, uh, across the pond, Lindsay. And I, I know you being an Anglophile, you appreciate this. So you need to read this. You need to read this whole story in a British accent. Yeah, that's not going to happen uh, because I, I do love and care for our audience and I want them to come back. But this BBC article centers on the first pictures from our brand new telescope uh, that we have launched into orbit, which has incredible capability to to see way far out into the universe. And this article says this, this is the gargantuan black hole that lives at the center of our galaxy, pictured for the very first time. So to set it up for you, if you click on the link in our show notes, uh, there is a picture from this telescope uh, that is at the top of this BBC article. Known as Sagittarius A, the object is a staggering four million times the mass of our sun. What you see is a central dark region where the black hole resides, circled by the light coming from superheated gas accelerated by immense gravitational forces. For scale, the ring is roughly the size of Mercury's orbit around our star, the sun. That's about 60 million kilometers or 40 million miles across. Fortunately, this monster is a long, long way away, some 26,000 light years in the distance, so there's no possibility of us ever coming to any danger. Quote, but this new image is special because it's our supermassive black hole, said Professor Haino Falk, uh, one of the European pioneers behind the EHT project. Quote, this is in our backyard. And if you want to understand black holes and how they work, this is the one that will tell you because we see it in intricate detail, said a, G- a German-Dutch scientist from Ravad University. Uh, so uh, these sorts of space uh, items, Lindsay, they always kind of fascinate me. I just think it's it's interesting to see all the ways uh, that the, the Lord created the universe and what he put out there. And uh, for whatever reason, our Lord in, in all of his wisdom he created black holes, and now we know for sure there is one at the center of the Milky Way. Brent, you know, I called you, we talked about Renaissance Man. I've got little children right here talking, so sorry, listeners. But we talked earlier about you being a Renaissance Man. I have to say I'm disappointed because you don't know the song Black Hole Sun. 
So you cannot be a Renaissance man in my book anymore. You see, that I didn't think you were going to go there. I thought you were going to go back to the Milky Way monster that was from one of the other uh, articles that we read, and it called it a Milky Way monster. Yes, and I said that should be your nickname. Uh, but I don't. What describe to us what a Milky monster, Milky Way monster is? <laughs> I just appreciate your kids offering uh, commentary as well. No, the Milky Way monster. That this is the black hole that is at the center of our galaxy, which is known as you know, the Milky Way and never, never mind. We're, we're going way too far into this. Anyways, uh, for you, uh, science, uh, buffs out there, I I'm sure that you will find, uh, this story to be very, very, uh, interesting. So, uh, with that, Lindsay, that is your look at this week in culture. Thanks for that, Brent. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. Brent, what have you been talking about at the lunch table lately? Well, the thing I'm most excited about is the annual church profile has been released by our sister entity, Lifeway. For those who may not be familiar, the ACP is just essentially kind of a quick snapshot uh, of look of information from around the Southern Baptist Convention, and we can figure out, you know, what is the relative health of our convention of churches. And this uh, this comes to us from Baptist Press, who's reporting on its release. And it says, Southern Baptist congregations saw a rebound in the number of baptisms, praise God, and an increase of $304 million in overall giving in 2021, both hopeful signs that congregations are recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic. Southern Baptist congregations baptized 154,701 individuals in 2021, which is a 26% increase from those reported in 2020. So that is that is great. Uh, it does say, though, uh, although baptisms are not quite back to pre-COVID levels, Southern Baptist leaders rejoice that numbers are moving in the right direction. I just think it, it's always interesting when we can get uh, bits of data from how our 47-odd thousand churches, which I, I should note the ACP is actually showing that number has increased. I just think it's always interesting. We can get these bits of, of data, and we shouldn't just gloss over the fact that churches are uh, willingly submitting this information, cooperating so that we can get this kind of 30,000-foot view of the health of our convention. And so so, Lindsay, that's what I'm talking about in the lunchroom this week. I, I know that that excites you. You get excited when we have data and details about our convention of churches. I am excited for the data that shows the health of many of our churches and increased baptisms, meaning people are coming to Christ. That is amazing, and that is exciting. Now, when you talk yeah. about data, the lunchroom, that is a little bit concerning to me because, you know, it's supposed to be kind of entertainment things, life hack type items, different things like that. Well, so, I would sub I would submit this is a life hack for our fellow Southern Baptists. Uh, so there you okay. go. Mm -hmm. Definitely a life hack for Southern <laughs> Baptists. Well, you know, I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but we like to watch different Star Wars things. And I've seen the trailer for the new Obi-Wan Kenobi series coming on Disney Plus. And so that's what came to my mind. I'm excited for that to come out. Do y'all watch that kind of stuff, Brent? We do not watch Star Wars. No. 
I have my own little Star Wars creature with me right here <laughs> who's speaking it in Ewok language. <laughs> Gosh. This is my lunchroom. This is what it's like to be a working mom, everybody. Yes. Yes. And and you do you do wonderful at it, uh, Lindsay. Uh, no, I will say we did make an exception for one show, which was The Mandalorian. That was one show that honestly probably I watched uh, more than than my wife, uh, but she was she was there with me, uh, which I'm I'm grateful that she she was and she <laughs> persevered through that. You know what? I'm going to add another one too because you mentioned your wife. I just downloaded the Goodreads app for book recommendations. And I just had forgotten about it, but I friended Meredith, your wife, and some other people. That's just good. If you're looking for book recommendations, join Goodread because there are a lot of friends on there that you might not think would be on there. And uh, they've got a lot of good book recommendations. Don't follow Brent though, if he's on there, because he reads boring books. I'm not on there. I think my uh, book choices are amazing. Yes. Well, lots, lots of data. Certainly fitting for a Renaissance man. Certainly fitting for the type of Renaissance man that you are, <laughs> which is a, maybe a boring Renaissance man. Just kidding. So anyway, just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolip. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.